Good afternoon. It's 970 WDAY Radio. I'm Kent Busick filling in for Rob Port today. If you'd like to participate in the show, call us at 293-9000, 293-9000, or 888-970-9329. Again, 1-888-970-9329. Today, we, we will be discussing a lot of different topics today, a little bit different for me. Uh, I, I was on the show back in... Uh, December, I guess, hosted for Rob, and he invited me back since he's taking the day off today after the convention. So back in December, we had a number of um, uh, political types, and we had two hours of political conversation in, in which we had Tom Campbell, Tony Gehrig, and Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford on. Today, we're going to do a little bit different. Uh, the first half hour, uh, questions, answers, questions, comments, emails, commentary. If you've got something that you want to talk about, something you want discussed. Uh, feel free to email us here at the studio or call us, and we can get you on the air at 293-9000. The second half hour, or at 1230, we're going to have Marcus Larson from the fmdam.org uh, 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 website. He, he compiles a lot of information on the diversion and what's going on from a spending standpoint, just the, the political processes going on with the diversion, and we're going to talk about that from the standpoint of where money has been spent to date. It was kind of startling this morning. I pulled up the site, fmdam.org, and to date over $600 million has been spent in regards to the diversion. $600 million, and the best that I can recall, uh, I don't think we've done too much digging uh, on the diversion around the city of West Fargo and Fargo for flood protection. So Marcus will be on right after the 1230 break. 1 o'clock, I'm going to have uh, Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford uh, join us for uh, a segment in which he'll kind of give us the state of affairs with what's going on in North Dakota, uh, talk about some of the initiatives from the Burgum sanford administration, talk about Western North Dakota and a revenue standpoint. And then lastly, really for a change of pace at one thirty, going to have two local authors on that uh, they're going to talk about their books, Paul Campbell from Fargo and Mike Monahan from Minneapolis. The two of them have recently published their own books and they're going to talk about the books the stories behind them how they came up with the books and they're just going through the publishing of the books in today's day and age but with that i'm going to take a few minutes and just kind of follow up on some of the highlights and things that have been talked about here earlier today and in the past few weeks and going to just touch upon a number of topics that come to mind and like i said if you do have any questions or you want to get through the show you could do that either through the email here in the studio or by calling in. First and foremost, just kind of as I was sitting here prior to the show, um, just listening to, the, to the, uh, the, the, the prior show that was on, there was a lot of talk about, uh, a lot of talk in regards to cutting back and regulations and, and just the impacts of that. And for me as a business owner involved in a number of different uh, type of operations, I'm sitting here thinking and listening, why is that a bad thing? If In today's business environment, it's very difficult to, to do business in, in North Dakota, Minnesota, and, and on a regional basis because of the rules and regulations that you have to fight through. My, my day job primarily is uh, I'm a tax preparer, and uh, that's I, I prepare taxes. And 
if you stop and think about it as we're going through the tax season and, and maybe just got your tax return done, just think about the complexity in doing your tax return and, and just the regulations and requirements to get your taxes prepared. And it, it starts much, much, much sooner, much before um, you, you go and meet your tax person. If you stop and think about it, that you have the banks, you have the counties sending out documentation to you to help you with your mortgages and your property taxes. And all this information is sent to the federal government. You have the banks and, and investment firms sending out 1099s reporting the interest and dividends that you've earned. You have employers providing information from the standpoint of how much you earned, how much you had withheld. All this getting reported to the federal government. And then you have to compile it all and then go to somebody or buy a software or prepare the return yourself, depending on what it is, just to determine whether you've paid enough taxes in or whether you owe more taxes. So that's just the regulatory impact and the cost of doing business right now. And one of the things the Trump administration talked about doing was um, trying to simplify the tax bill, and he was able to lower the taxes. I don't know if we have much simplification because all this compliance that I just talked about before you can actually sit down with your preparer is still ongoing. Some 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 people will have easier taxes going forward because they won't have to they won't have to itemize anymore. They'll just take the standard deduction. But but again, it's a situation that you know compliance has probably gotten more and more complicated. So that's just one one aspect of our daily lives. Everything that comes and goes and, and is involved in just filing your tax returns. But if you stop and think about things that are going around you that your employer has to go through to to have additional employees. To, to, to grow their business. So, for example, a, a, a builder, a, a property builder, a home builder, and just the regulations that they have to deal with, whether it's, you know, EPA issues, uh, city, county issues, water issues here because of the, uh, the fact that you may or may not be building in a flood zone. So there's just many, many different regulations and, and regulatory aspects that kind of get in the way and, and slow down the process. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Sanford did a presentation here a few months back that I was uh, fortunate to listen in on, and he was talking about the construction on Highway 85 in western North Dakota between Watford City and Belfield, that just to construct that road, there was going to be 11 different environmental impact studies to to, to build one 85-mile stretch of road. And as he has explained the situation, when I have him on here in about an hour, uh, I'll maybe circle back with that and just find out what the status was. But one of the one of the things being proposed by the Department of Interior was let's just have one environmental impact study in which the um, eleven federal agencies and state agencies would all use. He said that that would uh, streamline the process of building that road from anywhere from three to five years, and it's just one example of do we have too much regulation? Do we have too much going on out there that just makes things complicated for everyone involved and then just increase the cost of operations? So take a home builder, for example, that the fact that they have to be energy compliant or flood compliant or meeting certain building codes, for example, it just adds to the cost of the product. I know, for example, over in Moorhead that if you were going to build a twin home, and I, and I do believe this went away, um, maybe my friends at Jardell Custom Homes could help me out with this, but um, I know they had to put a sprinkler system in if you built a, a twin home or a duplex. And what that just did 
is added $4,500 to the cost of each side of the twin home. So with that being said, it's really something that wasn't necessarily, wasn't needed. But again, the state of Minnesota came involved and um, got involved and just increased, increased the cost of the product. So I'm hearing some background, some background music, so I guess it's time for our first break. Yes, sir. Okay, well, thank you. So with that, just stay tuned. In the, we're going to have a few more minutes. Uh, hopefully get some callers in, get some, get some uh, questions here, and we're going to be heading, heading to break, and we'll see you on the other side. I could use just a little hey, You can't start a fire You can't start a fire Welcome back. This is Kent Busick filling in for Rob Port on the Rob Report on WDAY 970 AM radio. And had a email or a text over the break and the emailer he wanted to talk more about the 600 million dollars that have been sent so far in regards to the diversion we'll touch a little bit more upon that after the break um we'll touch upon that a little bit more after the break where we have um we'll have marcus larson on from the fmdam.org website who's been filing all this information and if you go to that site, fmdam.org, you can see where the dollars have been spent to date with a majority, or not a majority of it, the largest, the largest portion being spent by the Cass County Joint Water Resource Group, about $189 million. The Corps of Engineers has spent $53 million, and then the list goes on and on. So we'll touch upon more of that in the next half hour, though. Some other topics that have come about, though, and have kind of piqued my interest here over the past few weeks, uh, number one... The, the, the student marches in regards to the, um, the shootings in Parkland and just the, um, the student marches in regards to potentially changing some rules in regards to um, the sale of handguns or automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons, which you know, the students have a right to do that. But what I would like to hear from or have parents or somebody talk about that, you know, who, whose kids didn't participate, and I'll use my example. I have two high schoolers. Uh, a, a freshman and a, and a junior in high school, and they did not participate in in local marches, um, nor did they really have an interest in it. And I found it interesting why um, uh, some of the rationale why they didn't want to participate with their fellow students. Number one, um, you know, the discussion item was, well, it's during school time, and this is really something that should be done on their own time. So, in regards to the marches, why were they done during the, the school school hours? Why weren't they done during non-school hours? Uh, secondly, um, both, well, actually, all three of my kids, my, my younger, younger one as well, all three of my children have taken hunter safety, so they understand the ins and outs and, and dealing and being around, um, being around handguns, automatic weapons, pistols, rifles. So they have a respect that, you know, just by the fact that, you know, one of the things that um, my wife and I did as parents was just to encourage them to take hunter safety and 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 be cognizant uh, of how a gun and, and a use of a gun is treated. Obviously, that's a different issue than some of the things that have happened with the with the shootings in the schools and such. But but yeah, but at least they have an experience or or they're used to dealing with guns. Whereas I wonder, a lot of the students that have done these marches or led these marches have any. Have ever, have ever had 
any access to handguns or semi-automatic rifles or done any safety classes before they're, you know, speaking out against uh, potentially taking away a right that we've had for over 200 years. And the one thing that is interesting in the whole discussion that I don't think has been talked about is one of the things that they're doing and proposing is taking away a right that we have versus many marches over our lifetime, whether it would be um, the Martin Luther King marches or the civil right marches, those marches or or women's rights marches, those people were trying to gain rights for people, whereas the, the guns, the gun debate has been about taking away a right that we have. The other issue that I like talking about, and especially with some of the groups that I deal with, um, um, is Donald Trump. Um, you know, obviously he's kind of, he, he creates a lot of discussion items on talk radio and coffee houses and places of business around the country in the community. But my question is, tell me or name something. I'd like somebody to tell me what is something that the president has done or, or introduced that's impacted them negatively. And I have some friends that are that would be considered on the left left side of the, the aisle and very anti-Trump. But when I ask that question, what is something that the president has done from a policy standpoint, from a procedure standpoint, that's negatively impact you? And it's very difficult for them to come up with an answer in which um, the president's policy has had a negative impact. If you look at it, many people out there today are very excited because they're making more money because of the tax cut. And what they're reporting now is 70, 80% of the people will actually benefit from the tax cut. Uh, If you want to work, there are jobs available. We had the discussion, I heard the last part of the, the, the prior show, talking about minimum wage and increasing minimum wage from seven and a quarter to $15 an hour. But the reality is, in this location, in in our region, our economic region, minimum wage is much higher. If you want to hire somebody to show up every day and you want to hire a good employee, you're not paying seven and a quarter. You're paying 10, 11, 12, 13 dollars an hour already. If they have any skill, they're getting paid much more than that. So at least in this part of the country and the idea of uh, increasing the minimum wage, there really isn't a need to do that because it's already being taken care of. And lastly, going back to my discussion that I had about regulations being, us being over-regulated, the, the Paris uh, Pollution Accord, there was a lot of discussion with that when uh, Donald Trump or President Trump decided to, to pull out of the, the, the Paris Accord and you know, how he was harming the environment, how it was negative, it's bad for the U.S., this, that, whatever. Well, first of all, uh, a couple of things from a, from a, from a legal standpoint the, when you enter a treaty like this, my understanding is that the Senate has to approve um, participating in a treaty of this nature. And the U.S. Senate never did. It was the Obama administration that basically signed the United States up for it. So first of all, we didn't follow the, the in, entrenched rule of law in that matter. But secondly, after the president elected that we would not participate in the Paris Accords, I found it real interesting what the private sector did. Specifically, you take the Apple computers, the General Electrics, the, some of the cities, San Antonio, Miami, New York City, they were going to agree to the standards that were set in the Paris Accords on their own. On their own. So here's a situation where private sector is seeing something that is good. It's good for business. It's good for themselves. It's good from a PR standpoint. 
It's good for the environment. And they decided to enact it themselves without government regulation. So the policy is good. You may not, you don't necessarily need to have the federal government coming in or the state government coming in telling you how to do it. So, um, you know, I just got a text message and we'll talk about trade with China. And again, the, uh, What's going to be the impact of Chinese trade or trade tariffs? Well, obviously, if you look what the president has done, and we'll use NAFTA, for example, he made comments that he wanted to negotiate NAFTA with um, the Mexicans and the Canadians, and both have come to the table looking to rework the deal. So if you read the commentary from CNBC and Bloomberg report, it sounds like NAFTA is going to get changed. So does that tell us that the president's right in this regard, that um, it was a bad deal? Um, he's probably is right on the Chinese example as well, that, you know, the tariffs that are placed or the trade agreements that we have in place with these countries are, are, are not fair to the United States. And that's the point that he's trying to make. So again, with China in particular, will we have a trade war? I doubt it because it's probably more detrimental to the Chinese because they would have more to lose from a trade standpoint than the U S because we're their largest market. But will the Chinese be willing to negotiate and do something that's more equitable in regards to the, the trade. So again, um, people will talk about thinking that this is a bad thing that the president is doing by throwing it out, but I, I, I tend to take a more broad look at it and saying, well, why is he doing this? Is he just going out to set up a trade war? Um, there has to be a reason for it, and, and he typically he probably has access to more, probably has access to more information than you or I do. So we'll see how that all shakes out. But again, using NAFTA, for example, and again, if it... Um, um, it, using NAFTA, for example, um, well, hopefully we get a better trade agreement. Um, in response to the last thing I had here is, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that after the, after the break, but, but, but like I said, I, you know, I talked to a lot of people in regards to the Trump and they'll talk about, um, and you know, the negativity because of the Trump administration, that's not necessarily in my opinion coming from Donald Trump, but that's coming from the, um, the, uh, the media sources against him. With that, we're going to be going to break here. And after break, we'll have a guest, um, Marcus Larson. Um, he's with the FM Dam FMDam.org organization, which we're going to talk about diversion spending. And then after that, um, we're going to have Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford coming on talking about the state of the state here in North Dakota. I'm Kent Busick filling in for Rob Port today on the Rob Report, WDAY 970. WDAY Radio. I'm Kent Busick filling in for Rob Port today. If you'd like to participate, please call us at 293-9000, 293-9000, or 1-888, or excuse me, 1-888-970-9329, or text the studio at WDAY.com. Today I have a guest in studio with me, Marcus Larson, who has set up a website, if you haven't seen it, um, I, I recommend you to go, go, go to it. It's fmdam.org. And what it's been, and, and, and what, I, what, what I see from this website, it's, it's accumulation 
and a gathering spot of what's been going on with the whole diversion program, where money has been spent, some of the policies and decisions that have been made, and just kind of accumulation of what um, the tax dollars have been spent at. And with that, I'll... Marcus? Oh, thanks for having me in the studio. Um, it was an interesting project. Uh, when we first uh, got wind of this, it was uh, just after the, shortly after the election in uh, 2010 when the Diversion Authority came out to our community and says, hey, guess what, guys? You're, you're going to be surrounded by this uh, body of water, so you're going to have to be bought out. Uh, there was no, uh, no prelude to it. It was just very simply, you guys are going to lose because we want to develop a floodplain. And um, throughout this process, the money is, is really kind of the big issue here because, um, you know, obviously tax dollars, property assessments, the whole gambit of dollars that are needed to keep this thing going along with the federal money. I mean, remember, this started out as about a $900 million project, grew to about 1.3, then 1.78, then 2.2, and now it's $2.4 billion. And to conceptualize this, if you started at Oxbow and put $1 bills on top of each other an inch tall, put them on their side, it would go all the way past Dickinson, North Dakota. And uh, so it's a really it's a large amount of money. But the DPAC assessment district uh, is probably at the crux of this right now because uh, the, the retail apocalypse that's kind of happening in America is, has been showing up in the sales tax shortfall in Fargo. And... Uh, so what we have here is a, a promise that they said, well, we're not going to have to really rely on this. This is just for, so we can get better interest rate on borrowing money through a P3 project. But in reality, um, there's going to be a shortfall, in, you know, coming into this sales tax where they're going to have to start to rely on those DPAC assessments. And, and Marcus, I, I think you've already hit on the, the two or three topics that I want to touch upon very specifically. When this project started off, it was a billion dollar project. And then, like you said, it was a $2 billion project. And and, and who knows where that's all going to end. So the question is how we're going to pay for that. And the, 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 the way that it's going to be paid for, or at least the way that it's been sold to us, is going to be through a countywide sales tax. Well, that's and, what we voted on twice till what, now 2084? <laughs> you're right. So we got 80 years of uh, sales tax. And one of the assumptions in that sales tax is, or, or in the projections for the diversion is, one of the assumptions is we're going to have 3% growth in sales tax year after year after year till infinity and beyond, and that's how we're going to pay for this diversion. Well, and that was the, yeah, that's the interesting point, because the, the, all the meetings when they were selling DPAC to try to counteract the sales tax vote, they were saying the projection was 4.4 over history, and they tried to be conservative at 3%, and they're actually falling short of their conservative estimates. And they weren't expecting. I mean, they didn't even have the foresight to think that there was going to be this retail apocalypse on us. And um, people are shifting their purchases now to online purchases. If the sales tax revenue isn't coming through, that's going to fall back onto the full faith and credit of the landowners. Well, not only is it the retail apocalypse that you talk about, that people aren't shopping at the West Acres or the Walmarts locally, but it's just it's, it's more so in this trade area that construction is slowing. We're not, we don't have as much building go on. I mean, if you look at the record year from a sales tax perspective, and I do have the chart in front of me, looks like it was 2014. Well, that's when Sanford Construction was at its height, the biggest uh, commercial project in the history of, uh, of the state, kind of driving these sales. So the the diversion authority has indicated that taking, taking this higher, high number of sales taxes, and it's going to grow year after year. Mm -hmm. But, you know, back in 2012, and this was a, kind of the concept of this, um, they, they knew this is the finance committee for the diversion authority. I mean, in their notes from their meetings, they said incoming sales taxes will not be sufficient to keep up with expenses. 
So what they decided to do, and, and I think this is the part when I talk to people out in the community when we talk the diversion, I ask them, what are your potential special assessments on your property? And they'll look at me with a blank stare in their <laughs> eye. Well, what do you mean special assessments? You know, that's the that's probably the most corrupt process that took place in DPAC is that they referred to what's called indirect benefits, saying that, you know, one piece of property has, you know, a certain amount of benefits, but then they don't get to vote on their full value of their property. You know, the the local uh, the local government, basically Cass County and the city of Fargo, usurped those votes. They, they have no way to generate income from these properties, but they voted on the voters' behalf. In fact, Cass County cast all their ballots before the ballots were even vote. Uh, before they were sent. And that was the question that was asked to me this morning because I was talking about this topic with a developer. It's like, well, we never got the opportunity to vote on this. It was just handed to us and saying that there was a benefit. Well, and and that that put the uh, taxpayer really at a disadvantage because when the process was, no matter how good it would come out, uh, you could have 100% opposed to this thing from the property owners. Uh, the DPAC vote was going to pass because the local entities defied their, their, their constituents. They basically said, we want this for development. We're going to develop that floodplain, and you really don't matter, so we're going to take two-thirds of your vote away from you. So after break, and we go into break here shortly, but we kind of want to summarize and, and, and lead into to the next segment is what we have is a situation here that the diversion is intended to be paid for with a sales tax, which... I think everyone will agree there will not be enough sales tax dollars to cover whatever the final cost is. Am I, am I right so far? They, they are so woefully underfunded right now. So with that being said, there's going to be special assessments, which have already been determined based on a value of what, a $1.8 billion project? Well, at the last, when they were doing the DPAC, it was based on $1.8. Uh, they, they're going to be coming back to this. And that's the scary part is that uh, the taxpayer has to find a way to resist this property assessment. And, and, and those numbers are already out there. You sent me a 451-page document with virtually every parcel in the county of, North, or county of Cass County what already says what your potential um, special assessment would be when this special assessment district kicks in. And that's the deceptive part because that's only one-third of what's going to be real and, you know, assessed against your property over time. Because everything has to come one way or another. If the, if the county can't pay that portion of it, they're going to have to spread it out across a general mill. And I, re- I recall one article in the newspaper, and I tried to find it, and I couldn't, in which um, somebody from on the diversion side said, well, the special assessor, assessment district would be like co-signing for a car loan. Really no big deal. You're not responsible because we've got the asset base to cover it. But... Again, it's co-signing for somebody else's debt. That was entire smokescreen on their part. And uh, me as a financial person, the one, number one rule of thumb out there is never co-sign for anybody for anything. But what we'd like to touch upon is, and then the other item too, is if you go to your website, fmdem.org, um, just the amount of money that's already been spent. Yeah, and if you could staggering. just talk about that for a second. Oh, you want me to do that now? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Well, we're right now, they're out of pocket $424 million. That's what they've actually spent. Uh, they have got another uh, roughly 57 to $60 million that is in outstanding debt that they have committed to contracts. And then they deceptively took $150 million worth of loans. They're held off the Diversion Authority books. 
And partially, that's probably just to make their finances look better. But we have a situation where when the $150 million, that still has to be paid back. So, you know, we're now north of $600 million. If they were to cash out today, they're underwater, $202 million. And it's just, uh, where do we generate that when we're, you know, possibly bringing in only about $30 million worth of sales tax revenue in a year? So, again, if we stop with the construction today and, and let's say, for example, Minnesota DNR does not give a permit uh, for the diversion and... and we come to our census and we stop stop the project. We still owe two hundred million dollars. Oh yeah, it's two and a half Fargo domes okay. in today's dollars. In today's dollars. So, so and and again, when you talk to the people, I don't think they understand that <laughs> it's this much money has been spent, where it's been spent, and how little has been done on this project. It, it's it is hard to wrap your head around it, but if you get a chance, just drive out on Highway eighty one and take a look at the hundred and twenty to about hundred and twenty six million dollars they stuffed into a private golf course. I mean, this was an unnecessary component because if they don't build the dam, they wasted all that taxpayer dollar to buy, buy out roughly 42 homes and a, and a golf course. It was around $600,000 in debt before the whole project began. Well, with that being said, how much work is actually being done outside of the Oxbow area? I mean, what's going on south of Horace on... Uh, uh, County Road 17. Well, they uh, preempted, they jumped the permitting process because basically they're trying to create sunk costs in this project. They want to get to the point where they can steamroll people saying, you know, it would be foolish if we don't continue because we've already got this much money and, you know, invested. So they dug basically a 20 to 30 foot deep hole and then they tore up a, a highway and inconvenienced everybody in the area for the entire summer. Well, now they finally came to their senses. They've stopped. They're trying to at least be a little bit more cordial in the process with Minnesota, or, or so it would appear. But they still believe that they're going to have a chance to get their permit and try to move forward with this project. But they have over 30 Minnesota laws that they have to comply with. And, and right now, um, they presented Plan B before they actually got done with the entire pro- process of the governor's task force and the policy meetings. Well, it's real interesting because there was a lot of work being done um, last summer, then all of a sudden, um, they reopened the road. Well, and that was uh, part of the uh, preliminary injunction that was handed down by uh, Chief Judge Tunheim. And, uh, you know, this was, uh, this was in the cards. Uh, Fargo should have been smart enough to see this coming. Uh, if they weren't, they shouldn't be in office. Well, with that being said, how do we stop it? Well, uh, right now there is a contested hearing that is still on the books that potentially could be heard in May. Uh, there is a process where by the end of April, we should be getting an indication from the DNR whether or not they think it's going to even be a feasible project or they're even worth pursuing it further. Um, but Fargo, they're not going to stop. I mean, they're, they're going to keep coming back after this thing from every angle because they are salivating over a development project in a floodplain that is going to displace water and create the very effects of the flood that they say that they're trying to protect against. And what you just said with that comment right there, basically you're moving the flood somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why the DNR uh, basically denied the permit back in October of last year. Well, let me ask this question. I remember in, in one of the last flood flights down along Hackberry Drive and, and in Harwood Groves, there seemed to be millions of sandbags that were placed on that mile or two-mile stretch of river back there. But if you go back there today, most if not all the houses are out. There's permanent mm-hmm. dikes there. 
to, to, to me, what appears to be a high level above the street level. Haven't we done a lot of the internal flood protection already? You know, they've made a sub- significant stride. And that's one thing that you never, ever see on the front page of the paper. They always see about this threat. We're going to be short of money. We're always flood prone. But reality, they've, they've made s- significant strides. And uh, they've, they've got more room to go. I mean, they're going to have to complete. But they should have been focusing on that from day one. They shouldn't have sunk $50 million in a hole to nowhere uh, south of Horace. Well, with that, Marcus, we're going to go to break here for a few minutes. And if you have any calls or if anybody has questions on this special assessment district, uh, feel free to give us a call at 293-9000, and we'll be back after the break. Welcome back to WDAY 970 Radio. I'm Kent Busick filling in for Rob Port, and I have in studio with me today Marcus Larson. And Marcus has been kind enough to join us and talk about um, some work that he's done in getting information out to uh, the general public in regards to where money is being spent on the diversion, um, just various issues regarding the diversion, how much uh, more we're going to spend and how we're going to pay for it. Very specifically, what we've been talking about is a special assessment district that has been put in place. And if sales tax revenues or federal dollars or state revenues aren't enough, this special assessment district is going to kick in. And that's really going to be the dangerous thing. That's the the shoe that hasn't fallen, uh, so to speak. You know, it was kind of a telling thing. And if a person actually reads, you know, the, the ballot, they uh, called it the FM Flood Risk Management District Number 1. Now, if this is going to be the tax that was going to take care of everything, why would you have the foresight to enumerate it as Number 1 if you didn't plan on coming back to this well two, three, four, five, six more times? You know, if they don't have the dollars with the sales tax and they keep this propensity to spend money that they don't have, they're going to have to get the money from someplace, and they're you know going to come back to the taxpayer on their properties. And taking it a step farther, there already has been calculations done, and those are public records. So if you own property in Cass County, you can know, you can find out what your potential special assessment Precisely. Yes. Yep. And uh, it, it is available on the FM Diversion website. And if you do have questions, too, you can always contact the, you know, the Cass County uh, uh, Assessor's Office and they can get you your your commitment as well. And, and for me personally, I don't live anywhere close to the river. I felt I was on high ground. But when I when you sent me that information, I found out that I had a potential uh, $12,000 special assessment at some point down the road. And again, that's based on about a $1.8 billion cost of the diversion. So if we start going to $3 billion, I would expect the specials would go up accordingly, wouldn't they? Yeah. I ran some projections back in 2011, and uh, I said it was going to be probably around $3.6 billion. And that was based on an older formula today. Uh, there's a really high likelihood that they're going to be four to five billion dollars on this project, and uh, you know there's there's a long history of these projects. I mean, Breckenridge they they said 23 million, it was 83 percent over budget, came in at 42 million. Uh, Wapiton was 10 million, it's 120 percent over budget at 22 million. Roseau, I was born there, 24.3 million dollars uh, for their project, they were 72 percent over, they came in at 41.8 billion uh, million. 
And, you know, Oxbow was at $65 million. They're They're 98% over budget, and they're only a third done. They have a project problem here that they spend money, and this mission creep takes over. You've got developers that have got this interest. They've got the lawmakers. They've got the decision makers in their back pocket. And then these things just simply seem to go forward just because everybody thinks it's a great idea, except for the people that are actually paying for it. And I'm not able to pull up the full question, Marcus, but we did have a, a listener uh, send a question. What about the WAP rec diversion that was put in place without downstream impact mitigation? That well, water now goes back to... That's an interesting question because there's been debate on both sides of this. Uh, the project itself with the Corps of Engineers, they were supposed to be required to do a complete EIS. Now, when the water came around, uh, they called it unintended consequences. Um, you know, what are the unintended consequences of this diversion project? I mean, there's, they're so far reaching. They're claiming it's going to only, you know, barely reach the county line. And, and we know that it's going to go all the way back to Kent, Minnesota. That's 21.5 miles upstream. Uh, this pool of water is going to damage so many people. So water has become a problem in the valley because people inherently build where the water wants to go. And now we have a city that's sanctioning it and a county that's sanctioning it. They're going into a floodplain that is flooded in every single flood. And they're saying, hey, let's build more there. Let's plop another school there south of Davies. I mean, these are just um, really bad decisions by lawmakers and decision makers to, you know, build a, an economic engine that can't even pay its own way. Let's talk about Davies High School, for example. I, I, I tend to think that if you build a $100 million facility in South Fargo like they did, you would think that there'd be flood protection in place already. Why do we need the diversion? You know, <laughs> they, they knew that they wanted to develop that. Uh, this stems out of 2004 from the FMUS upstream study. They found that they did not have enough to protect that floodplain. This is how we morphed into this. They developed a Tier 1 and Tier 2 development program. Then they plopped Davies down there in the floodplain even after the flood of 2009 out of defiance. You know, the taxpayers weren't asked, and now they've got infill around there. Now they have to put protection around there, and that displaces even more water. It's this cause and effect that just is out of control, and Fargo's project here is going to be the same thing as Stockton, California, and they're going to go bankrupt. So one of the arguments people will make on, on, the, on the pro-diversion side is, well, if we build a diversion, we don't need flood insurance, but that's not the case either, is it? <laughs> there is absolutely zero guarantee that FEMA is not going to require flood insurance behind a dam because there are greater risks of internal flooding from high rain events than there is from the Red River. So with that being said, you know, we could spend these billions of dollars, have hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially special assessments, and we still have to have flood insurance on our property like we do right now. Yep. Every, every household is going to, by the time it's all said and done, through sales tax, through property tax, through incidental taxes, every household on average is going to pay between forty-five dollars and $60,000. Marcus, what's the best way to get a hold of you or get more information in regards to this situation, which I feel a lot of people don't know about? Just contact us through FMDAM or admin at FM dot, uh, fmdam.org. Thank you, Marcus. That wraps up the first hour of the Rob Report today. I'm Kent Busick filling in for Rob. The next hour, we have Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford. And then the final half hour, we have Paul Campbell and Mike Monahan, two local authors, talking about their books. This is Kent Busick on WDAY Radio. You know, this is Kent Busick on the Rob Report, sitting in for Rob Hort today. Uh, I have the 
pleasure of having joining us today is the Lieutenant Governor of North Dakota, Brent Sanford. Uh, Brent's been a, a pretty pretty good friend of the, the media sources. If you have questions or want to talk to the Lieutenant Governor, just track him down through his office in Bismarck, and uh, he'll try and comply with you. Brent, how are you today? Great, Kent. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, a lot I want to cover with you. Um, but first of all, uh, over the weekend uh, with the state convention, the, the Republican convention up in Grand Forks, do you ever think back two years ago when you were in Fargo, somewhat minding your own business, you were the mayor of Watford City, running the family business, third-generation business owner in Watford City, and next thing you know, you're lieutenant governor. Yeah, next thing you know, nothing really happened in between, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's quite a quite a change in my life the last two years. So there was some flashbacks, but 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 not too much. I tell you what, the convention was so exciting to see how people came together and all the presentations and the, then the votes and how it all worked out. And just an exciting time for Republicans. We're all trying to get on the same page, united, you know, be on the same page as the president moving forward here. And and uh, no, very exciting times. You know, I want to talk about. I want to talk with you about some of the, you know, the the, the big issues that uh, you're involved with out in Bismarck. You know, revenues and and the initiatives that you and Governor Burgum are are pushing. But uh, story in today's front page of the form: um, need for oil workers in the oil patch. Uh, fill us what's going on. Fill us in what's going on out in Western North Dakota right now. And and not only that, Bismarck Tribune had a story on the lack of single family housing is going to hold us back on the state's economy and. Really what's happening is a, is a repeat. It's just that the oil isn't quite at that boom level. It's not, you know, if it was 80 or $90, we would get really crazy again. But with oil leveling out in the $60 range and the, and the, uh, the president's um, responsiveness to the industry and all, I mean, it's something where, where the, the, the oil, oil industry is back, looking for employees, housing is caught up now, the apartments that were empty, are filling up in Williston, Dickinson, Watford City. The hotel occupancy is back to where the investors like to see it in most places. And, and in fact, Watford City, the hotels are pretty full. And, 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 and talk about this, Lieutenant Governor. I mean, many people don't, a lot of people don't understand, especially here in the west or the eastern side of the state, the, the type of person that was out in the Bakken in 2010, 11, 12, with, with the build-out of the Bakken is different than the type of person that's moving there now to work. Absolutely. The type of employee here now is more like what you see in coal country or more you would see in, in the winter. You know, I mean, it's not, it's, these, are, these are long-term jobs that are in the same place, more of a power plant type, you know, education, more of a, a you know, someone works with their hands in more of an industrial setting. I mean, these are, in addition to the professional opportunities, obviously, you know, the uh, civil engineering, the petroleum engineering is a big need. But the mo- for the most part, these jobs are like someone that works for One Oak works for a gas plant where you might be a pipeline monitoring employee where you have a pickup and you're monitoring stations, compressor stations and that, or you might work in the gas plant itself. We have four gas plants being constructed right here in this part of the country, just in, basically in McKenzie County and northern Dunn County, four gas plants that are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment of private money. And these take a lot of jobs, a lot of permanent jobs, and they're not the person coming to drive a truck. They're not the person coming to work in oil rigs. These are jobs where you bring your family, you buy a house, you live there for the, for the rest of your life. So if you haven't had the chance to be out in Watford City in the last five years and just compare it to what it is today versus going back to 2012 when you had the trucks lined up for a mile each way going through town, I mean, beautiful brand-new school, performing arts center, convention center, uh, there's restaurants, there's grocery stores, there's housing, 
And, you know, that's it's not only Watford City, but it's Williston, it's Dickinson, I mean, even Kildare. I mean, there's been a lot of changes that are all positive to help bring the people out there for you. That's right. And the, the investors have a different mindset this go-around. They're, they're not as scared to come in because if the other people have invested within the last 40 years, unlike what had happened before. But, I mean, they, but, but it is still a case where, you know, they saw the ups and downs of valuations. You still see some, some hotels, some of these housing-type complexes where valuations were tumbling in the last year. But basically it's a lot safer environment for an investor to invest seeing what we've come through in the last four years in the western part of the state, I would say, you know, and, and then look at the long-term play. That long-term play is dependent on the number of wells and the number of employees needed to service those wells into the long-term. The long-term play is not dependent on the rig call, and that's important. People have figured that out. Would you be willing to take a question, Lieutenant Governor? Absolutely. Aaron, why don't you go ahead with your question to Brent Sanford? Hi, Canton. Uh, Brent, uh, I, I just want to say, you know, I, I can tell, and I sure appreciate the, the programs and the extent to which you and Governor Burgum and, and in, a, in a roundabout way, President Trump going for regulations. Uh, I work at the largest assembly plant in Gwinter, North Dakota, and I can tell it's, it's just vibrant, and we're just going full speed down there. All right. Thank you. But, but, again, that's a common theme that you're hearing. I alluded to a little bit in my opening monologue. I, the, the, I told the story how um, the Highway 85 project at one point in time, what did you mention, 11 potential environmental impact studies would be needed to build that road. Now with the new interior secretary, he was talking potentially only one and reciprocity amongst the groups and just the savings involved. Absolutely. What a change it's been with the new cabinet. We. We had, as the, as the governor mentioned this weekend, we had a, about a month of crossover with the previous administration, and they they were not on the same page with us. It was more of a no development of resources type mentality and, and stop any kind of energy development, stop anything that would bring jobs to this part of the country. Now now we see people that are on the same page that are, that are asking us, what would you need to be able to get these projects done? And a lot of that is simplification of regulation. And, and, and having, having Ryan Zinke here, he is on the same page with us. He's from Montana. He understands the difference of, of what we believe in Montana, North Dakota versus the East Coast. We believe we can have our conservation and have economic development and still be able to live here and still be able to have agricultural opportunities and energy opportunities. Well, a point that I tried to make in the opening half hour when I was talking about whether we need the right, need have the need for all the regulations, um, companies self-regulate themselves right now because, number one, it's good business. They have to do it for safety reasons and PR reasons, don't they? Absolutely. You look at the energy industry, they're, most, they're the most proactive industry you could have because of the, the microscope they're under. People are watching at all times. Um, they're all wet nothing but white pickups at safety meetings. If you're in the coal country, you see the cleanest environmental regulations of anywhere. They turn that ground into better land than what they started with when they're done with their coal projects. So uh, obviously the first few months of your administration, you and Governor Burgum, you were kind of caught behind the eight ball and you had to make some pretty drastic budget changes to to get the balanced budget or the budget balanced. Um, How are things tracking right now from a revenue standpoint? Well, I tell you what, it's pretty good when you have oil sitting in the 60s and you have the DAPL pipeline in the ground, so we're getting a few dollars more for every barrel that goes through that pipeline. We're talking $10 million a month plus of just an impact from that. I mean, these are bringing more money into the coffers. We're tracking very well with the budget itself, but we have to caution people even saying that, but that doesn't balance the books for this biennium. For next biennium, 
if you want to be investing at that same type of level, you need to get, you need to gain a little bit and have some of those savings accounts padded. And so that's what we're watching now is the the SIF fund, the Strategic Infrastructure Investments Fund account. Is it what is going to be available in that for next go around for these long term projects? And that's one of the things people don't realize. You tap the number of the rainy day funds. You just didn't balance the budget through revenues. You tapped into some sources that really were one one-time events that you could get the money, correct? Hundreds of millions of dollars, absolutely. Yeah, so we need to, we need to move ahead of budget and be able to stock some of those accounts again to be able to have these infrastructure investments that people are looking for, and we, can, and we traditionally have done the last few bienniums. So over the years, I've done a lot of work, and I've dealt with you over the years doing some projects in western North Dakota, and you've mentioned four coal or uh, natural gas uh, plants, processing plants being... Um, proposed or under construction right now in Western North Dakota, about $300 million per plant, 60 to 80 permanent jobs paying up to $100,000 per year. Um, But that's just a drop in the bucket. As we continue to drill and we have more and more natural gas being produced in Western North Dakota, we need more of those plants, right? We're we're not going to stop at four. four, Oh, my gosh. No, that doesn't even get us to handle the, uh, if you look at Justin Krinkstead's presentation from Pipeline Authority, if the oil production exceeds expectations, those plants don't even handle what we need the next few years. So it has to continue. The private investment has to want to keep coming here. They have to feel comfortable that our regulations are reasonable, that we do support innovation, not regulation, that we're open to a business environment in this state because they have to keep coming. The state can't do this alone. We need the private investment. Well, and again, going back to the natural gas side of it, that's just on the private um oil production, oil and gas productions. If you look at the, the federal land or, and, and then the, the Bureau land, um, they're not uh, compliant with the numbers that the state wants to get to. So they're going to need to play catch up and, and build some of these plants as well. Right. If the feds ever get as good as the state at capturing their gas and not polluting the air, um, yeah, they, there's a lot more gas capture needed. Part of our challenge is how to make sure that our overall state percentages are being met when the, the investment is not being made by the federal government. The tribal government is very proactive. They, they understand this issue. They, they understand re- responsible resource development. And so we're trying to work in concert with them to wrestle away some of that regulation so we can do it here locally because we're doing a better, a better job, frankly, than, than the feds. And that was a conversation and, and, with Ryan Zinke as well, and he's in agreement that there's things that can be done better at a local level. And, and I mean, specifically what we're talking about there is if you look at the, the, the flaring that's on federal land or Bureau of Indian Affairs land, that's what in the 20 to 5 to 30 percent range is still being flared? Sometimes higher. And in the, in the challenge is getting the easements to put your natural gas lines in the ground. That's the main challenge. It's so hard to get easements when you're going through the federal bureaucracy. And then whereas on the private lands, what are they, 10 percent uh, being flared right now? Less. Okay. Less than that. Yep. So that, that, that's where a situation where you don't have the regulations, you don't have the, the regulatory issues, the private sector will get things done. Right. So we, need to, we need to focus that private investment around the federal lands to be able to pull the gas off and process it responsibly. So uh, is it across the, the, the board that the, that the revenues are, are better, or is it just oil and gas? Is it? Uh, I know the egg sector is still slower than it used to be, but do you see any upturns there, or just just a general picture, how, how, how do things look across the board? Well, yeah, the sales tax and income tax is just a little bit better than than forecasted. And, and we're hoping for a big summer of oil activity. What really drove the spikes in sales tax was, was when there was a lot of fracking going on and a lot of oil activities. And there's a lot, there's a lot more 
um, their exploration budget out there. So if we see a lot of fracks, we'll see a lot more sales tax out this direction in the west. Um, you know, that helps the state budget if we exceed where we were, where, where we were guessing we would be based on the last few years of activity. So we could still see a positive spike in sales tax because a lot of that comes from, like I say, that oil exploration side. And then, you're, and then if you have more gross production tax, extraction tax from that oil, oil activity, then that populates some of those savings account buckets that we have, puts more money aside for water development, and, and then that helps the, the entire state, as we all know. I know it's always fascinating to talk to you about Western North Dakota because that's where you're from, and, and I think here in the East, you know, we're not up to speed as much as we should be. But uh, when we come back after break, Brent, um, we're going to talk about some of the initiatives that uh, the Burgum Sanford administration has been working on statewide. If you have questions or comments, feel free to email us or call us at the studio. Kent Busick for Rob Port on the Rob Report today. Good afternoon. This is Kent Fusick on the air with Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford. And if you have questions or comments to Lieutenant Governor, feel free to call us at 293-9000 or email those to us at WDAY.com. We were talking earlier, Brent, about the revenue, and it's always uh, the the, the uh, big ticket item here in North Dakota since uh, we had the revenue downturn. But talk about a few of the initiatives that uh, you and the, the governor are championing that we may not hear hear as much about. Well, you probably have heard about Main Street Initiative. We've gone all around the state visiting with communities about how to uh, how to recruit the millennials, how to keep our kids, how to fill these 15,000 jobs by having strong, attractive, vibrant communities. They've been very fun. Every community is unique, has different opportunities. Um, second one, you, you've probably heard of uh, Recovery Reinvented. It's the first ladies initiative. That's She's been doing a great job trying to reduce the stigma of addiction. We, she, by bringing it up, you wouldn't believe the powerful response people have of her admitting her struggles and, and bringing that out in the forefront. And it's really been a great thing for getting behavioral health issues forward and a lot of positive things happening there. We have uh, tribal engagement. Um, government to government is the number three one, and, and the governor and I spend a lot of time whether it was starting our administration off with Standing Rock, trying to help resolve those issues, um, whether it's now with, um, with um, my neighbors at uh, Fort Berthold Reservation, the MHA Nation, Chairman Fox, great partners trying to deal with how, how to help with the energy development and how to help with societal challenges because of the overlapping systems of federal government, tribal, state, county, within the tribal reservation areas. And, um, and not only that, we've been to all of the nations. We've been to... Fort Totten, we've been to Belcourt as well, and, and spending a lot of time trying to make a difference there. Um, and then the, the um, government reinvention is kind of a, gen, a general one that the governor loves most of all to get into all the different agencies. And the last one I'd like to touch on is, is reinventing education. And so we have very robust conversations, I would say, about K-12, about, you know, um, talking with teachers, empowering teachers with the, the ability to take shackles off them so they can instruct our kids with the latest and greatest of technologies and, and, and programs and such, and then moving into the higher ed sphere of governance task force, the governor's leading himself. That's all part of the education reinvention side. And that, But the governance task force is looking at the constitutional requirement for institutions versus what we need to do today based on workforce challenges. And I can tell you, unshackling them so they can provide what's needed for today's graduates from 
K-12 and what the workforce needs is something we've got to do. We've got to be able to allow duplication of programs so that the Dickinson State can offer what Dickinson employees and future workers need, even if, even if it's being offered somewhere else. And that, that's something we hear as we go around the state, that they need a little more flexibility. So a lot of stuff going on, very exciting, very exciting times to be in the governor's office and can tell you working with Doug Burgamy never stops. A lot of excitement, lots of activity. We're, there's, there's a, it's a long day every day, but we're, we're accomplishing a lot of good, I feel. Does he still send the 3 o'clock in the morning texts and emails and expect you to respond to him at 310? Uh, it's more like between 12 and 1. I think, I think the governor probably sleeps from like 1 to 7, 1 to 6 maybe. <laughs> I remember back in the day that was legendary that he'd send out the emails, you know, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And then uh, why did you respond right away? But, but part of it goes back to the fact that you worked in... Um, the private sector your whole life obviously the governor was in private sector with great plains and microsoft so again taking a different approach to government and how it's ran and and, and the use of resources probably a little different approach than a lot of people are used to right and it's something where you you're trying to empower employees you're trying to you're trying to move common sense initiatives forward and with government you've got a lot of silos you've got a lot of a lot of regulations and statutes that are in place that hold you down and, and you're doing things just because that's what the law says, and that's what we've been doing for so long. And so you've got a lot of employees in the in the the, the government employee sphere that have great ideas of what to do going forward, what kind of solutions we need. So that's just a matter of taking it from what they know as the resident experts and trying to bring that back to the legislative process. And we've got you know great relationships with legislators and just trying to move these things forward of what's the next what's the next steps to be able to accomplish better better processes for the citizens of North Dakota. So a little background, I think many people know or they may not know, but, you know, you were a third-generation auto dealer and service shop out in Watford City. Your grandpa started the business back in the day, and then you moved back to Watford City, what, 2004, 2005, uh, brought your family back to raise them in, in small, small town North Dakota versus the bigger city. Um, and from there, you've met the president a number of times at both the White House and in North Dakota. What's that like? Uh, being around, being around the, the 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 position, I can tell you what what always amazes you is that he's a human being just like the rest of us. puts his pants on the same way, and when you meet President Trump, I, I expected that he would just kind of blow you away with personality and with gusto, and it was more like, "Hey, how you doing?" You know, and he asked me, asked Governor Burgum, he said, "Hey, Governor, how you doing?" And he and then Doug introduced him to me, and he said, "Hey, is he any good?" You know, I mean, it's just very. <laughs> easy, casual conversation. Same with Ivanka. You know, it's just like talking to a daughter, proud of her dad, happy that they come to North Dakota, and we're actually nice to them versus when they go certain other places. And so it's very, very normal people. Vice President Pence, same way, very normal person, down-to-earth people. I think they have the country's best interests in mind, and they've got really good appointments in those cabinet positions, like Ryan Zinke. You've had a good chance to meet with him again this weekend, and very normal Montana type of a guy, very well, normal people. Well, Lieutenant Governor, you obviously made an impression on the uh, president because he only called you the best lieutenant governor in the country. So good job. <laughs> Keep up the work. Good work. And uh, thank you for your time. We're going to be uh, wrapping up here with Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford. Uh, questions or comments in regards to uh, him, they can reach you through your office at the uh, Lieutenant Governor's office in Bismarck. And uh, continued success for you and your administration. Absolutely. Thank you, Kent. Great time today. Thank you. You're welcome. With that, we're going to wrap up. We're going to um, come back after the break on the, the Rob Report with Paul Campbell in studio and Mike Monahan from Minneapolis. And we're going to talk about their books that they've authored here in the past year. 
Good afternoon, Kent Music today. Sitting in for Rob Ford on the Rob Report. Uh, I've expanded my Radio Horizons today. First half hour, I I went solo and did a little commentary monologue, which was a little different for me. And then the second half hour, I had a guest on the guest in the studio, which was a different experience. So now, really expanding the horizons. Got somebody I have a guest online, Mike Monahan, down in Minneapolis. Are you with me, Mike? I am, Kent. Thanks for having me on today. And I got Paul Campbell in studio. So what's unique about these two gentlemen, Mike, uh, Mike down in the Twin Cities and, and Paul locally is, they're two um, younger lawyers, uh, both have legal degrees and, and practice and have practiced law, and recently both of them have written novels, and they've gone through and uh, self-published their own novels. So what I wanted to do is help them out a little bit by, first of all, having them come on, talk about their novels. And then secondly, we're going to have a little discussion about what's it take to go through the process, get the book published, and sell the book. So, Mike, since you're not here, I'll let you start. A little bit about your background and the book, The Bringer of Death. Sure. Thanks again, Kent. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a lawyer by training. Uh, you know, I also have some experience. I, I started and operated in an investment bank, SEC licensed investment bank here in the Twin Cities. We had an office in New York City as well. Uh, that was kind of a little bit of bad timing on our part. We started that uh, those two businesses just before the financial recession. Hung on through most of the recession, and then um, you know our clientele was early stage companies, smaller companies. Credit and financing had pretty much dried up for those companies, so they they were struggling as were we. So I I took a job with Cargill here in the strategy role. It was there for three years. Um, and then through kind of a restructuring, I found myself working for myself again um, and had an opportunity with a little bit of flexibility and time to do something I've always wanted to do, and that's write a novel. Um, didn't know anything about it when I sat down to start writing it, uh, but I put together uh, terrorism was a is a big area of interest for me. I was raised in New York, so I've kind of always followed the news on the subject. I read pretty extensively a lot of nonfiction, including the 9-11 Commission report. So it's been an area of interest to me for a long time. Um, and then later on, I discovered Vince Flynn. Um, I voraciously read all of his novels. And I've read a bunch of other authors uh, in the genre as well. And that's kind of so how, I, is a, that's how you pique my interest, Mike, is that's how you pique my interest because kind of looking for and, – and you don't replace him – but, you know, somebody along the lines of a Vince Flynn writing the political thriller, the terrorist thriller, you know, where the, the, the good guy comes and saves the world. And that's kind of what you've, um, you're bringing with us with your book, The Bringer of Death. Yes, and, you know, we all have, each, of a, each author has his or her own voice. And, you know, as much as I admired Vince, and it was really uh, fantastic when I was introduced to the three people who helped Vince start his career 21 years ago now and self-published his first novel. I got some assistance from them as I went through the self-publication process, but it's my own voice. I kind of had, you know, I've read pretty much and I, I just wrote in my own voice and I, I wrote a counterterrorism thriller that the reader seemed to, to, to enjoy. So I, I feel pretty good about that. And we'll delve into the book here in a few minutes, but just for anyone that likes, you know, the Vince Flynn type of book or the terrorist, uh, type genre that uh, Mike mentioned, uh, The Bringer of Death. It's a book about uh, a, a pending terrorist attack or 
the threat of a terrorist attack in the United States and how his character, P.J. Carpenter, tracks the, 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 the terrorists around the world. And it's a little bit different approach to the uh, terrorism discussion or the, the terrorist novel um, than, than any others that I have read. But with that, I want to take a, a jump, switch gears here and um, introduce Paul Campbell. And Paul is a local author that's done the same thing. So explain your process. I have. Thanks, Ken, for having me on. Uh, thanks for being with us, Mike. Congrats on the book to you. Thank you, Paul. You too. Absolutely. Thanks. So, yeah, mine, mine's a little different genre. Um, mine's a, a novel based on, on true events that kind of hit home literally to me. Um, it's it's uh, kind of a, a literary romance uh, novel based on how my parents fell in love. And that was back in the 70s. But um, kind of the synopsis is my dad had a high school sweetheart, you know, through junior high and high school. Um, you know, they were in love. He was kind of the, in the book, the star athlete, and she was the, uh, the star cheerleader, so, so to speak, kind of the cliche, but, um, you know, just before, uh, their senior prom, she tragically passed away from a heart condition. And so it picks up after that, obviously the main character dealing with that tragedy. And then one, when summer comes along, actually, um, his sweetheart who died, her childhood best friend and cousin, comes into the picture, and that's actually based off my mom. So they obviously uh, bond over the grieving process of the loss and kind of the uncertainty of the future and um, end up uh, you know, falling in love, kind of a summer love, and then a love that has lasted about 40 years now. So, you know, it's based on that true story. It's a fictional story, though. It's a novel. But, um, you know, people that I've, you know, have read the book, they call it a love story. And it certainly is. I mean, that's obviously the underpinning of it. But I, I think it's it's just as much a life story. I mean, it's it's about relationships. It's about overcoming adversity. There's a big faith component to it, um, and the journey of these two characters. And uh, you know, there's there's obviously some drama and some family dynamics. It's set in a small Minnesota lake town. So I think anyone who grew up in a small town or, or grew up with a lake cabin or going to the lake would certainly enjoy those aspects of it too. So. Or even a big city purpose that wants to take a uh, a, a visual away from the big city and, and, you know, place themselves and, you know, at the lake on the summer and just, uh, you know, hang out with some teenage kids as they fall in love. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had a lot of people say that. I mean, it's just, and I'm sure Mike has gotten this too. It's just incredible to hear feedback from people that even stuff as small as that, that, you know, gosh, you know, really reading that reminded me of summers growing up on the lake or, or, you know, small town sports and that type of thing or, or as much as people relating to the actual story of the of of the characters too, so that's been really rewarding. And and Mike, as as you noted out, it's a, it's a fictional story that you've written, but again, in many ways, it's a true story. In that, uh, as I was reading the book, what I took out of it is like, oh my goodness, this is a, a, a bring you up to speed on what Al Qaeda has been doing the last eight or ten years. You know, a lot of the rhetoric out there in the news, uh, national news, international news is, you know, Al-Qaeda has gone by the wayside, but you take a little different approach to it that, you know, they've just been in, they've just been dormant, retooling and looking for new new leadership, and which in many ways could be a true story. It is. And um, I took a little bit different approach, as you mentioned, and I've, I've read quite a bit on the subject, so I, I have a good baseline knowledge, not an expert by any means. And thankfully, Paul, no one is said to me, your book reminded me of something, so <laughs> let's hope that that rings true. But I wanted to make, uh, I wanted to write something that was both entertaining and informative and perhaps a little bit insightful. So I finished writing my book uh, at the end of August and then sent it through the editing process with Amazon. 
So during that period of time after I had completed the book, um, the FBI came out with a warning about terrorists using a certain device or instrument in attacks that was in my book. This goes to the, the reality of it or the, the timeliness of it, Kent. Um, and then there was an event on the border, the U.S. southern border, two weeks before the book came out. It was in my book, and it happened exactly the way I wrote it, and that was kind of eerie. And then right around the same time, Thanksgiving, uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the press started to report on a reemergence of al-Qaeda as a potential threat. So those, those went into, that was the premise of my book, is that al-Qaeda has been somewhat quiet. You know, the Islamic State has taken over the headlines for a number of years. We haven't really heard much from al-Qaeda. But knowing how the give and take and back and forth of the terrorism world kind of has been historically, I envisioned some kind of a reemergence by al-Qaeda. So I tried to think how they would do it, um, and I, I felt they would need a new dynamic leader, someone to replace bin Laden. Al-Zawahiri doesn't have the same charisma, and as we know from the Islamic State and from bin Laden days, personality matters in the terrorism world just like it does in, in the regular world. So that's... Uh, that was a character that I formulated to, to lead al-Qaeda back to prominence. And, of course, I had to figure out someone to execute the attack. And then I had to come up with my own Mitch Rapp. So my guy, P.J. Carpenter, takes a little bit different approach to things than perhaps Mitch did. Or Mitch uh, was very, very kinetic in, in the way he, he dealt with things. I think Carpenter, P.J. Carpenter, thinks about things a little bit more, maybe a little bit more cerebral. So there's a difference there between the two characters. But and, and just like the, Love's Will is a story about Paul's parents in a roundabout way, P.J. Carpenter has a relation to you. He does. Uh, Preston James Carpenter, uh, P.J. Carpenter, was my great-grandfather, someone I had never met. Um, and the book's not based on him, but it was kind of an homage uh, to my great-grandfather, who my dad spoke of, you know, still speaks of with great reverence. Um, he's a great man from what I understand, and so I, I wanted to use him and kind of honor him by naming my protagonist, my main character, after him. It's all good stuff. So when we come back here in a, in a few minutes, um, what I'd like the Paul, I'll let you lead with this, is um, I want to talk the, the publishing process, what you've had to go through. I know you're out on Amazon and you know, barnesandnoble.com, and you've done book shows and, and, and author signings, but uh, would like you know, Paul to lead, and then, um, uh, Mike, you can follow up with it as well. Just what you're going through just to get the book out there so it becomes more mainstream. This is Kent Busick on The Rob Report, WDAY 970 Radio. Good afternoon, Kent Busick on the Rob Report, phone in for Rob this afternoon. Today I have on the phone with us Mike Monahan, the author of Bring, the, a novel, The Bringer of Death, uh, an Al-Qaeda-type thriller, political thriller. And in studio I have Paul Campbell, who offered a book called Love's Will. And we were talking about the books earlier before we went to break, but uh, Paul, if you would, just talk about the publishing process, what you had to go through just to go from you know, what you had written down on paper to publish, to print, to selling. Yeah, absolutely, Kent. So, I mean, it, you know, once you 
finish the book and you get an editor and, and maybe a formatter, it's kind of like, okay, what do I do now? How do I get this out to everyone? So usually there's two lines. There's the traditional route and then there's a self-publishing route. And, and I, I kind of tried both. I tried the traditional route and that's basically where you send kind of a one-page letter, maybe a few pages of your, your manuscript is what they call it at that time, um, to book agents around the country. Um, you know, thousands and thousands of books are written and there's, you know, not that many agents. So it's, it's a long shot for sure. I heard back from three of them and had some discussion about them and ultimately didn't work out. So I went the, the route of self-publishing through Amazon, which has worked out really well. Um, it's really flexible. Um, you basically have all the decision-making, obviously, of your editing, your cover art, and all that type of thing. So um, it's worked out really well. And, and basically, Amazon just takes a royalty of everyone sold. And the beauty of, of Amazon is, and there's other ones out there too, but um, it's a print-on-demand service, so you know I don't have to order a thousand books and have them, you know, in the guest bedroom of my house, just waiting to sell. If you order it on Amazon, it gets you know printed and sent right to you. So, um, you know, there's challenges that come with self-publishing, as Mike probably knows too. I mean, you're on your own to promote it and to sell it. You know, Amazon doesn't do that for you. So, um, you know, you got to get out, kind of just like selling anything else. You pound the pavement and 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 try and get the book into people's hands and, and it spreads word of mouth is obviously the, the best way to do it. And, um, so that's the challenge of self-publishing, but, but um, it certainly has its advantages too. And, you know, from Paul's standpoint, the family is legendary for driving door to door and all around the country in the back of a, sleeping in the back of a vehicle, selling potatoes all over the country. So you're doing the same thing with your books, right? Yeah. I saw that at a young age. Yes, I did <laughs> for my dad and my uncles. So yeah, I learned the, uh, the way to sell things, for sure. Yeah, just get out and pound on doors. Mike, what was your experience in getting published? Well, my experience was very similar to what Paul described. Um, I also went through the query process, and that's what Paul was explaining on the traditional method of writing a query letter to a literary agent and essentially begging them to represent you and, and take a portion of your royalty. And as first-time authors, I think we both ran into the same hurdles. There's, you know anywhere from hundreds of thousands to millions of books published every year. So that's who we're competing against for attention. So that was when, um, you know, I kind of switched gears and pivoted and started looking at self-publishing companies. I ended up interviewing, I think it was six, including Amazon, who I went with ultimately. And, I, and just compared what the offerings were. I just felt like Amazon offered what I wanted, and that was someone to make sure I was putting the, the correct uh, grant, you know, commas in the right place. I still don't know how to do that, to be honest with everyone. Um, so that was uh, important to me to get some copy editing, editing done. Uh, they helped with the cover design, the marketing copy, and that stuff. But and, and the process was pretty seamless. I thought they did a very nice job for the most part. So that was that was my whole process, and that was the, on the recommendation, too, of the f folks I mentioned before who had said, just self-publish. Don't waste time. This is what Vince did. Here's how you do it. Although the industry has changed radically over the last 21 years, Amazon now controls uh, roughly 65% of book distribution. So I went with Amazon, um, and as Paul mentioned before, marketing, uh, promoting the book is left up to the author. Um, and that's a, there are different things that you can do. I know that Vince Flynn, for example, hired a publicist to help him get word out there. Um, I don't have, I, I think he actually took outside money to hire the publicist. So 
I had already spent, you know, Paul and I probably spent about the same amount of money, but it's a decent amount of money to go through the publishing process with Amazon. Mike, would you say you have an advantage because you're down in the cities because you have, what, 50 Barnes and Nobles and 50 independent bookshops that you can do book signings? Whereas, you know, Paul's got to drive up to Grand Forks to do book signings and Grafton and Devil's Lake and... Yeah, he's 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 got a smaller demographic to work with. Uh, it is. You still have to work through the distribution wrinkle. Now, you'll have to, in order to distribute to bookstores, you have to add in another layer of distribution, which increases the price of your book. So it's a strategic decision. And I did that recently. And I'll be doing a Barnes & Noble signing next month. I did one at a small bookstore in St. Paul. Um, I've also done some appearances at local businesses and those types of things. You have to be very resourceful and resilient. I guess I, one thing I would tell anyone who's interested in writing a book, you have to have a high level of perseverance. Uh, first of all, if you talk to anybody about doing it, they're going to tell you you can't do it. So you have to overcome that hurdle in your mind. And then you have to be persistent. And you have to believe in, in the quality of your work and Get it out there as best you can. Tell everyone about it. And that's a bit daunting when you first. I'd be curious to hear Paul's uh, sentiments on this. But when you hit that button that says "Publish my book," there's a little anxiety that goes along with it because you don't know what people are going to say about your book. It's kind of like walking out into the town square with no clothes on. Uh, you're there for everyone to judge, and you don't know what anyone's going to say. So, Mike, we're running up against a hard break here. How do sure. how do people get a hold of you or get a hold of your book? The book is on Amazon. It's easily most easily found on Amazon. There are some Barnes and Noble stores too, but Amazon's the easiest place. The Bringer of Death. It should come right up in your search in the search box. Thank you for your time today, Mike. Paul, same question for you. What's the best way to get a hold of your bike? Your bike, your book. Easiest way can uh, go to pryancampbell.com. That's my personal website. Or same thing, go to Amazon.com and search Love's Will or uh, P. Ryan Campbell. And you know, the one thing I think you've had a pretty good response from is from the, the mom crowd or the female crowd. It seems like uh, they, they like the story and like uh, reading about uh, what happened with your family. Absolutely. Well, that's going to wrap it up for me today. Kent Busick uh, setting in for Rob Port on the Rob Report. Uh, I want to thank my guest today, Marcus Larson from fmdam.org, Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford. Uh, the local authors, Mike Monahan from Minneapolis and Paul Campbell uh, with the books Love's Will. So get a chance uh, pick up both of those books. They're good reads. You guys have a great day, and we'll talk to you later. Cause a teenage